Hi, everybody. This is next episode of Shift and Podcast. We have a special guest today. Uh, I hope I pronounced the name correctly. Aina Kori, uh, who is the who is the definitely an expert in Agile and specifically in one aspect of Agile, which we're going to discuss today, the meetings and specifically retrospective meetings, because she published a book about this, in my opinion, very narrow area of Agile, but that's you can imagine the whole book about it. So definitely we are going to talk today to an expert. So Aina, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Yegor. I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right, but your, yours was fine. Uh, yes, so I have been in IT since 2001, and I've been doing a lot of different things in IT. And well, I've been a software architect and a developer and a manager. And so the past 15 years, I've started facilitating retrospectives and facilitating more and more to the point where this year, it seems like all I'm doing is facilitating retrospectives, talking about retrospectives or teaching about retrospectives. And it is a very narrow field and writing a whole book about things that can go wrong in that specific meeting seems a bit narrow. And that's also what some of the publishers I tried with said. <laughs> uh, but I think it's a very important part of any agile setting, the retrospectives. So all that inspect and adapt really takes place in the retrospective. And that being said, um, the things that work in retrospectives works in other meetings as well. And also in my teaching, I'm teaching how to teach computer science to teachers at university. And I use a lot of the things uh, from retrospectives in that teaching. I actually like how you call yourself in one of your presentations, the meta developer, and you explained why, because you are, uh, you develop developers. So that's why you're meta developer. Yeah, I, I do like that. Uh, you know, we have two words here, which probably some of our listeners don't understand the facilitating and retrospectives. So how about you explain, first of all, what is facilitating? Yes. So you probably, you probably, everybody's probably heard about meetings and everybody's probably heard about how to lead meetings, but facilitating meetings is quite a different thing. So when you're leading meetings, you normally have a specific goal um, that you want to achieve. Um, there's some decision you want to take. And sometimes you even want that decision to be taken in a specific way. When you're facilitating, you're just trying to make it easy for the meeting uh, participants <clears throat> to do what they need to do in the meeting. So you're making it facile, you're making it easy. And what you have to do as a facilitator is to set the stage, create the structure for the meeting and allow them to discuss whatever they need to discuss and then facilitate that discussion towards something that's constructive for them. And what's also important when you're facilitating a meeting is that you, you should be unbiased. You should be completely objective. You shouldn't have any <clears throat> subjective goal or anything that you want to achieve. And also you should try to be invisible. So I, I normally say when I teach how to facilitate meetings, I say, if the meeting participants go away from the meeting thinking, what role did I know actually play in this? What did she actually do? Then you've achieved what you wanted. But that can be very difficult. Personally, I've, I've really worked with um, becoming invisible. It's also problematic sometimes um, in some meetings where you really want to say, you should do this, you should do this, but you want them to uh, sort of achieve that knowledge themselves. And that's something I think that maybe we should talk a little bit about when we talk about retrospectives. You know, I'm trying right now to find, as we speak, I, I remember many years ago, I've heard about some sort of association <coughs> or user group for facilitators and uh, something even like kind of certification for that. So I'm, I'm trying to find it, but... Do you remember something like that? Yeah, yeah, there I found International Association of Facilitators or something. Is it close or 
I, I don't know. I no? I have nothing to do with that. So <laughs> I I have very few certificates. I have a Scrum Master certification and a Java Programmer certification and a PhD in computer science. And those are the only certificates I have. And so when I'm selling myself, I, I'm not talking about my certificates. I'm talking about the things that I've achieved instead. But my, my question is, is this, uh, because it may sound to people, so some people that is facilitating the meeting, it's like a common sense. So you just uh, sit yeah. in the room and just uh, ask everybody to behave and that's it. But it sounds like there is more. Yes. Well, there is more. But, and also, I mean, even if it is common sense, as you know, common sense isn't quite as common as you might think. Um, there is more to it. And there's definitely facilitator trainings you can do. And I've I have been uh, attending something called the Retrospective Facilitators Gathering every week, where it's not a certification, but it's facilitators being together for a week every year, where we talk about <clears throat> how we can improve our facilitation. There's so many things to facilitation. I already mentioned one, which is about being invisible and being completely objective to what people are talking about. Um, you can talk about how do you handle your like your own reactions or your feelings when you're facilitating because you are not allowed to become angry or to start shouting or um, to change um, people's minds. You want to just support what they're thinking and getting them to something constructive. And yet you don't want them to just talk about the same thing every time. You don't want them to stray away from the focus of the meeting. So it's, it's very difficult. And there's there's many different aspects of facilitating. So it's about how, how do you plan the structure of the meeting so that you can achieve what you want to achieve? How, who do you invite to the meeting? How do you close the discussions if they're just going in circles? How do you make people go back to the discussions that you should discuss? How do you make everybody being heard in one way or the other? How do you avoid that some person is just talking all the time? How do you handle if there's conflict? So there's a lot of these things that go into facilitation. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one part. And the second is retrospective. So what is this? I mean, this is coming from Agile, I believe, but still would love to, to hear your opinion. What is this? Yes, well, originally, it wasn't just from Agile. So originally, it was called postmortems. And it was something that you did when a project was done, when a project was over, you would have a postmortem, which would be covering a project that took one and a half or, or a year. And then you spent two or three days trying to figure out and to learn from what actually happened. Why did it end like it did end? Why did we not achieve what we expected to achieve? Why did it get over time? Why did it get over budget? So these postmortems were something you did even before people started talking about Agile. And those postmortems actually came from things outside of uh, computer science. You can talk about a real postmortem, like in the medical part, where you're looking at a dead body to try to figure out what killed that dead body. So that's one way of looking at postmortems. If you've been in the military, you know that every time you've you've been in some military event where you made where you practiced something, then you have some something. It's not called postmortems; called something else. But where you go into the details about who did what and what happened and why did it work like this? Why did this not? So they try to learn every time they've made some sort of exercise. And they also, of course, try to learn every time they've been in actual war. And there's like the Indians who were jumping around the, the fire every time there'd been a hunt to try to figure out how did it work this time? Why, why didn't it work? So the retrospective actually comes from the knowledge that it's good to learn from things that go well, but it's definitely also good to learn from things that fail. And then 
there was a man called Norm Kurth who wrote a book called Project Retrospectives. And he said that he wanted to change the word from postmortems to retrospectives because postmortem sounds like something is dead and you can actually do a retrospective about a software project that's still alive in a sense. And then Dana Larsen and Esther Derby were the ones that then changed this to agile retrospectives. So they took all the knowledge about postmortems and project retrospectives and put it in an agile setting by seeing how can these activities that normally takes half a day, how can we boil them down to something that takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes or an hour? So they were the ones that put it into the agile setting. And then because of the agile thought of inspecting and adapting, it, it became um, a deep part of agile. And Scrum then also took it into the description of Scrum, which is one of the agile processes. So I don't know. So that answers the story about the historical aspects, but maybe I should talk a little bit about what an agile retrospective is. Yes, definitely. But my first question would be why not so many teams are doing that? Because in my experience, I probably have seen it maybe once or two times in my life, that kind of meetings or really retrospectives where people really sit together after some period of time in software project and formally discuss that. Of course, I've seen people talking about what happened, mm -hmm. but as you explain it now, it should be like a meeting, like, hello, everybody, please sit down. We have a formal structure of this meeting. So, but it, it doesn't really happen quite often in my experience. <clears throat> Why? Well, I think there are many reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that it, it is actually very difficult to talk about things that has gone wrong. And I think in any software project, even how successful it might be at the end, there has been some things that didn't go exactly as planned. And um, maybe some people have quit, some people have been fired, there's been some conflicts or, well, and that can be difficult to talk about. So you need somebody to help you to talk about this in a constructive way. And that's why some people say we should have no blame retrospectives because it's so ingrained in people that they want to find out whose fault it is and, and sort of fight that person and fire that person or demote that person or put the blame on somebody. And that is not very nice for people to go somewhere where they think they've done something wrong and now they're to be blamed in public and everybody should hear in detail, scrutinating detail what went wrong. So a lot of people don't want to do that. So they're afraid of it which is quite understandable because it can be a very messy thing if it's just done like that. If it's done with a real facilitator who knows their business, what they will do is to make it a non-blaming retrospective where nobody gets blamed. And when something happens that's wrong, of course, you can say that you were stupid, you did that, or he was lazy, he did that, or I didn't know that, so I did that in the wrong way. That's one way of looking at it. But you can also see if somebody does something wrong, it's probably not because they intendedly wanting to ruin that project. It was because there was something that they didn't know. There was some data they didn't have, right? So we could change the project so that people will get that data earlier. It could be a skill set they didn't have. So maybe they need um, a course, some training. Maybe somebody else had to do that. It could be something that they thought it was the right thing because they'd always done it like this, but now the context had changed. And they hadn't noticed that the context had changed because they hadn't talked to the other people, right? So we have to change the process again. So when I go into a retrospective and I facilitate it, I sometimes have some people feeling really bad when they start because they know they've done something wrong. But once we start working with it in this way, where we're saying, let's try to change the process or the system. If you can look at a team of people as a system, a lot of moving parts that has to fit together. 
they have to have the right amount of, of communication, the right amount of cooperation, the right, right amount of respect to each other. And often always, when we dive into the whys and the hows, you'll notice that at some point, somebody was wondering, mm, why are we doing it like this? Shouldn't we do it like this instead? But there was never any time, there was never any place for that wonder. So some of the things that often come out when I facilitate retrospectives is that we should have some part of our process where people can wonder aloud without people saying, that's a ridiculous thing to ask. Why are you wondering about that? We've always done it this way. This is perfect. But actually allowing people to say, I'm not sure this will work. And then respecting that thought and going into that, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It sounds it sounds really as a as a the very interesting place to be where people are really the people you describe when they um, when they do the best they can when they have all the best intentions and they're not afraid of uh, making mistakes and then fixing the mistakes they made. But in reality, people are a bit different from that. And I I, I know this. You call this prime directive or what's the right name the, the yes. like the assumption that everybody is actually uh, have best intentions in the project and we yeah. have to believe in that and that's the the assumption we come to the table with this assumption but in reality it's different so maybe these retrospectives are not happening because people people are people and they don't want to be like you just said they don't want to be blamed in front of the room because other people when who work well who have really best intentions they see people who are lazy you know, they happen, this happens, and they will blame these lazy people because maybe they're not full of respect or something. So people are different. So maybe uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine this uh, community of people really yeah. respecting each other, really open for suggestions. It is an ideal world. I, uh, I agree. And there are some, there have been some teams where I've had to say, you really can't have retrospectives. You might as well just don't have them because you are not able to believe the prime directive. And the prime directive was um, the prime directive that Norm Kurth came up with that. Um, I don't remember the precise wording, but what he says is that remember everything at any point in time did the best they could with what they knew at the time, the skills they had at the time and the situation. And believing that prime directive is not something that is easy, as you know, because we know some people are lazy or they do something else. They play on their phone instead of working. Um, so it's something that's really difficult to believe. But if you want to really have a function in a constructive retrospective, you should try to get in that mindset. And that's also what Norm Kurth originally said. He said you should try to be in that mindset as best you can. So if you go into the retrospective thinking, I really want to see the best here. I really want to learn instead of blame because learning is much more constructive than blaming. <clears throat> if you can do that, you get a better retrospective. But as I said, I've had some teams where I had to tell them, you are so searching for blame for scapegoats that you might as well not spend the time on the retrospective. It will be a waste of time and it will be um, harmful and and you have already, you can look at the story, you've already lost some of the best people and you will continue to lose more people because this is not a nice environment to be in. So you can say that whether you can have a retrospective or not is sort of a litmus test for how, how nice it is to be in that, in that organization. And I've, been, I've had different managers over the years and I've made a lot of mistakes myself. And the best managers are the ones that does not make me feel like an idiot, but instead are saying, let's see how we can change this 
so that it won't happen in the future. And if you're talking about people being lazy, well, maybe the retrospective is the way um, is is a way to talk about this to say that I had expected that we would go further with this. Is there something that is holding you back and getting more done on this? Because sometimes when people are lazy, if you look at the reasons for them being lazy, it could be that they are afraid of making mistakes. It could be that they don't really know what they should do. What I've seen very often when people are seen as lazy is that they're working on something they're, com they're completely uninterested in. They're not motivated for it because they don't see the goal. They don't see why they should do it or something that they don't know anything about. And then they try to, to work slower because they don't know how to do it and they don't want to ask anybody, how can I do this? They're ashamed to ask for help. So it's not easy. And what I'm normally, so I'm, I'm an independent consultant, as you said, I call myself the meta developer because I'm developing developers. And one of the ways that I'm developing developers is to develop their way of communicating with each other so that they learn instead of blame. So when I'm called out to facilitate retrospectives, it's normally not because all the retrospectives are going well and people are happy about it and they love retrospectives. I'm being called out to facilitate retrospectives when it's already gone wrong. When they think that the retrospectives are a waste of time or even worse, when they think that the retrospectives are very unpleasant to be in. So I'm called out in all those situations, which I think are very interesting um, because I'm try I, I need to try to help people into retrospectives again, making it very obvious what a constructive retrospective is and what you can get out of a good retrospective. So it seems that we can split all teams into two groups. The first group is the teams which enjoy retrospectives and they benefit from retrospectives. And the second group is the, uh, the teams which uh, only make things worse because you know thanks to retrospectives and you're saying that for second group there is no point of doing retrospectives because they cannot take that any any value out of it they even get the negative value but it seems that the second group actually needs retrospectives more than the first group because in the first yeah. group everything is more or less okay but then the second group is in trouble well yeah there's many things to what you said right now so yeah you can divide them into these two groups and normally this, it's the second group that I come out to and I'm trying to get them to start retrospectives in a way that is constructive and then make them realize that there's value in spending the time on the retrospectives. It's very few groups that I've had to set to in my career, 15 years of facilitating, you really shouldn't have retrospectives. And what I have said is that you really shouldn't have retrospectives the way that you're working right now because there's no respect, there's no trust, there's no psychological safety. So people are worried about saying something that makes them feel uncomfortable. And if you worry about saying something that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's something you have to work with before you can get a really good retrospective. Now, you're also saying that the teams where everything is going well don't really need retrospectives. And that's the other thing that I wanted to say something about. So I, there is when teams start doing retrospectives, they, they normally start here and they, they really like it. They think it's interesting. They get a lot out of it. They like fix a lot of things. And then there is a period where they think that they, they can't really fix much. And then sometimes they stop doing retrospectives because they're saying, we can't get any better. We've solved all the problems. I mean, we just continue to talk about the same things. And that's also sometimes where I come in and I say, well, you're a great team. 
but you can become even better. If we change the way we have the retrospectives, if we ask some different questions, if we have somebody else facilitating, then some other things will pop up. And to me, a retrospective is like training for a marathon or being um, an extreme skier. So even if you're an extreme skier and you're professional and you're on the world's top 10 list, then you will still try to retrospect. You'll still try to look at how can I improve my technique? How can I improve my material, my skis, how my dress? How can I improve the way that I sleep, the way that I eat? I'm not saying that the retrospective is about what, how you sleep and how you eat when you're making software, but there's always something that can get a little bit better. Even if a team is going very well and everything is going very well, there might be something you can change, right? So there's always something, but the problem is that if you have the same retrospective every time, if you're asking the same questions, like what went wrong, what didn't go well, what are you wondering about? And the brain is lazy and the brain, brain uses a lot of energy, right? So if the brain can, can sort of get away with it easy, it will do that, right? So that's also why habits work. That if, if you're being asked the same things, you answer the same things. So that's why it's important sometimes to shift the way that you do the retrospective, to ask some different questions, to allow your brain to come up with things that you maybe didn't think about. And another thing that often happens in retrospectives, when people say they don't have anything to talk about, is one of the things that you can do in a retrospective is that you can say, okay, so here's a timeline. Think about what happened in the last three weeks or month. Put up post-it notes, maybe virtually, maybe in real world. And then all of you just spent a few minutes and people are writing, people are writing, they're putting up things. Then there's a break where nobody's writing. And this is an important break. So normally people will then start looking at the facilitator saying, why doesn't she stop us now? We're just wasting time. And then they start, you know, they, they take up their phone and they're sitting with their phone and they're working on other things on their phone. But the, the problem is that what happened there is that they got the things out of their working memory, right? Very fast. But then you need to give them time to go deeper into their mind, to think about things that are not sort of on the top of their mind. So having that break and staying through that awkward silence is really important. But in order to do that as a facilitator, that's one of the things that you need to know as a facilitator is that A, you need to know that that's how the brain works and you need to be brave enough to say to people, now you will feel there's an awkward break where you have nothing to say, but please don't take up your phone. Please don't look at your email or the news right now. Please just take a moment to think. And if you're running out of things to think about, then look at what other people already put on the board because then maybe you get reminded about something. Oh yeah, there was something there that really bothered me or mm, that worked really well, something like that. So that's one of the sort of tips and tricks you'll learn as a facilitator to endure the awkward silence, but also to explain to the participants there's actually a constructive reason for this silence. And I think that's one of the things that's very important to do when you want to change the the setting, if you come to a team that hates retrospectives because it's a glorious waste of time, it's very important to explain to them, right, we're doing this because of this. There's a good reason for this. It's not just because somebody wrote it in a book somewhere, but it's actually psychological or uh, experiential uh, knowledge about this. Who is the primary person in a software team or a company who needs retrospectives? 
I'm asking this question because I feel that it's not the project manager. It's not the leader of the team, because usually this is the person who most people blame first. And this person should, I believe that this person would not be the person who calls you and says, please help us to make retrospectives better because we so much need retrospectives. I think this person will be the first one to hide from retrospectives. (laughs) Ah, well, yes, that's another thing. <clears throat> the people who normally call me in are actually managers or project leaders who are saying that, <clears throat> but <clears throat> what they're saying is that our developers need retrospectives because they need to improve the way that they're working. And then what happens at the retrospectives is that the people who are in the retrospective are only the, the core people in the team. And then we talk about things that go well and things that don't go well. And then sometimes we make this um, soup diagram or the circles of influence where we're saying, so all the things that you're complaining about, how many of these things are things that you can do something about, put them in here. How many of these things are things that you can influence, put them in here in the bigger circle. And then the things that you can't do anything about, you can't influence that put them out here in the soup. And the soup things are the things that the managers normally take care of. So these are the times where they start complaining about the manager, complaining about the environment, complaining about the context they're in or the whole organization. And then what I'm saying there is that this is a retrospective for the team. So please focus on the things that you can do something about, all the things that you can influence. And then they're saying, but what about all these things that other people are doing wrong? Can we do something about that? And I say, well, yes, I can take some of these post-it notes and I can bring to the management and I can say, this is something we could do. Or the next time you have a retrospective, we can invite the manager to the retrospective and then the circles of influence would be bigger. Or I can take these things to the managers and then I can ask the managers if they want retrospectives as well. And that is, then that's when it becomes interesting. And that's something that a lot of people in the IT industry haven't thought about. They're thinking about retrospectives as something only for the developers because that's what it says in the Scrum book. But I've, I've got a lot of good in experience with creating retrospectives for the next layer of management and the next layer of management because they also need to talk about what's working well, what's not working well. And I think in a sense, it seems to me Not many organizations have a way for managers to talk about the things that go wrong, where they do something wrong themselves. So they also need to support, they need to be facilitated in talking about things that maybe didn't go as planned. And maybe they can learn about it instead of blaming themselves, blaming others, or blaming the developers. The problem is that the more you think us and them between the the developers and the management level, the more you sort of cut a bigger chasm between them. And in that way, I think that the solution about bringing the manager to the retrospective can be good. There are problems with that, of course, is if there is no psychological safety, if there's no trust between management and developers, then maybe they don't want to say anything. The developers are worried that they might get fired, so they don't want to say anything. Um, The managers are worried that maybe the developers won't respect them afterwards, so they don't say anything. So it it can be problematic. So in some cases, that's something that you could work with as well, creating more trust between the different levels of people in the organization. But again, um, in an ideal world, I know exactly what they should do and what everybody should do, but it's very rarely an ideal world when I come out and talk to people. And then I say, well, let's see what we can do within 
the developer team how much we can improve that and then there is the api or like the layer between this team and other teams maybe we can work with that as well maybe we can have a bigger retrospective where we have a representative from each team or something like that there are many ways that that you can try and tackle it isn't it isn't it also a cultural problem or aspect while uh, some cultures are more polite by by their culture and some people who are coming from other cultures they're less polite and for them being in retrospective meetings and participating there is more difficult and more destructive because they like you like you said in one of your presentations in in, in your language you don't have I, I hope it was a joke but you said there is no word for please. the please yeah so you don't say please is it a joke or is it really true it's true way. it's true funny you know but in other culture we have uh, another type of culture completely where there are many words for the same meaning please so people are trained from the from the childhood to to behave with the extra respect for other persons so even mm -hmm. when somebody made a mistake still i will not well if i am the member of that culture i will try to avoid explicitly saying that to that person that this is your mistake i will try to be more polite and so on and so forth so don't you think that these retrospectives are more suitable for some cultures and not suitable for others they're definitely more easy in some cultures than in other cultures i think they're very relevant in cultures where where it's difficult to say something negative and so in in denmark it can be very easy to have a retrospective because people are very open about things. The thing that you have to be worried about in Denmark is to make sure that everybody has the same level of openness because some people come from the outside may not be as open as, and as outspoken as, as the Danish people. And then it'll be the Danish people who are sort of talking and other people are being very quiet. And in some contexts, when you have a retrospective where a culture where you're not really brought up to say anything negative and as you say you wrapping everything up in different ways of pleasing um you have to be more creative and think about how can we make people say something without them actually saying something so sometimes when i'm worried about this i make what you would call an indirect way of asking them so you can say what is the worst thing we could do in this um in this project what can we do to, to, to ruin this project? What can we do to get the worst thing possible out of this project? And what you get there is a lot of ideas that can be fun to talk about and okay to talk about, but actually that shows them what they're really worried will happen. And the things that are really worried will happen will normally be things that they've tried before or they're trying right now. And that's an indirect way of talking about it. So they're not saying, I think it's really stupid that we fired that tester or I think um, we really need to go back to having meetings every day because I don't think it's a waste of time, even though the manager thinks it's a waste of time. I know that this communication is important. And then you can say, well, uh, you know, the worst thing we could do is never to talk to each other or the worst thing we could do is have no testing of this or something like that. And then you can have a conversation about that. And of course it would be nice if I was able to, as a retrospective facilitator, to just cut through that culture and say, oh, I know how to make everybody speak very openly and very candidly about things, but I can't do that. I'm not a superhuman. So I have to try to assess and gauge what is it that I'm working with and see how far can I go. So there's only this far I can go in a retrospective, depending on what people have. So sometimes I've introduced online um anonymous retrospective where it's very anonymous 
what people who is writing what so i've had a lot of experience with google drawings in that sense because when you invite people to a google online drawing then you really are anonymous like you show up as an anonymous monkey or an anonymous cat and then you can see that everybody else is anonymous so unless you can sort of well, sometimes you can read if there's one person who's not very good at English and everybody else's, then of course you can see who it is. But if everybody's like on the same level of, of writing, then um, then it can be anonymous. And I've seen some people in some cultures where they would normally not say anything, where they suddenly just blossomed up when they noticed that it really was anonymous. And they came up with a lot of first some very eye-opening things that they saw were wrong, but they'd never said anything. And then when we talked about what to do about it, they came with a lot of really creative solutions to what to do about it because it was anonymous. Another thing that I sometimes do is that if I if there's a new team that's about to start or they need to start a new project, I have something called a future perspective where I draw a timeline and then I say, okay, now we're in the future. Now the project is done or it's Christmas or whatever. And then I would like to look back at what has happened during the project and think about the good things and the bad things and the things you're wondering about and in the beginning people will say we can't look into the future that's a stupid exercise but I say well let's just try just try to imagine that the project is done and think back of what happened and slowly slowly they get started and then after 20 minutes we have this timeline of things that went wrong and that went well and things that they were wondering about why did we do this why didn't we have a coach standard why did we do the peer review like that why did like things like that very technical things but also organizational things or a cooperative things communication things and and then you can say well how can we in this project how can we avoid the things that you just saw here went wrong how can we make sure that the good things happen and how can we answer the questions you're wondering about so that's i think a very constructive way to start a project development or start a new team so that's one way of thinking about it. the other way of thinking about it is for me to learn something about these team members because when they create that timeline then i see what has happened to them before in those things that they hope and those things that they fear are the things that they've experienced before so I get to know a little bit about them and they get to know a little bit more about each other. Maybe this anonymity is a solution for, it could be a solution for multicultural groups. But even though I know that you're in general against remote retrospectives where people sit in Zoom and they talk to each other without cameras, I remember you said in some presentations that this is not the way to go. It's much worse than the real actual retrospectives in the room. But uh, two problems we have right now. First, uh, as you know, this pandemic situation. So we're mo more and more software teams, they work remote. Mm. Second, we have multicultural teams where, yeah. like you said, somebody come from the north, somebody come from the south, and they have completely different understanding of what is being polite. So maybe we can turn these retrospectives into just, just anonymous polls. We just ask questions, people vote. <clears throat> yeah. Some people do that. And that, that, I mean, that's, that is also constructive. You can, you can get, you can get some way with that. Like you can just asking people anonymously what, what has happened. And then you can have anonymous polls about what, what we should do. But that's just one part of the retrospectives in my sense. So, but that's an important part of the retrospectives is to see what's working and how can we change it. So that could be done. But another thing that happens in a retrospective is also that 
let's start with the anonymity. If they see that we, we have some sort of anonymous um, gathering of data and they see that, okay, even though somebody said something which was very critical about the system, the organization, the management or something else, people didn't run away scared. They actually had a discussion about it. Then that will show that person that it's actually okay to say something and then perhaps changing the way that that person understands this culture and making them more brave about saying something in the future. So I, th I also see the retrospectives as a, as a training ground. So it's a training ground to see, okay, it's actually okay to talk about things that went wrong. I can see that other people won't get killed if they said they've done something wrong. And that means maybe like I can say something wrong. It's also a place where you suddenly start to respect each other a bit more if you do it in the right way, because <clears throat> you've been wondering why that person was so lazy and didn't do anything. And then you notice that that person is actually not just working on this project, but also working on three other projects. And, and the laziness is just that they don't have time to do it well. So that's a way of learning about each other. But to me, it's also team building. So I try to have something personal in the teams, in the retrospectives every time, because if you look at trust, trust is so important in a, in a work relation because trust is when you can trust somebody to do something or you can trust somebody to say when something goes wrong or you can trust somebody to say, I don't know how to do this, please help me, right? So that trust is so important. If you want to work with people, you have to be able to trust them. And that trust is built out of relationship and, and, um, and that you can rely on each other. So... If you can rely on somebody and you have a relationship with them, then you can have trust with them. If you think about people that you trust, it's probably something that you can rely on and something somebody you have a relationship with. And the fact that they can rely on each other, you can build that not in the retrospectives, but outside the retrospectives. That if people say they want to do something, you can rely on them either doing it or saying, I can't do it for some reason or the other. And the relationship part is something that you need in order to trust people. So you need to know something about them as people. You don't necessarily know, have to know the names of their children or their hobbies, but just knowing something that makes them human makes it easier for you to, to start communicating with them. Like if you're both windsurfing or you both live in a different country that you were born in, or you both speak three languages fluently, then you have sort of an, a way to contact that person and start a conversation, which then might end to and into a technical conversation where you're asking for help. And I think that that's also a thing that's important to do at the retrospective is to train this communication, to train this trust that people can then work with afterwards. So, and that communication, I think, cannot just stay as anonymous data gathering and anonymous uh, polling. There has to be some sort of communication between people to achieve that. So what I'm saying is that you can definitely get one part of the retrospective done and dust it by like make your process better or make your software development more efficient. But that thing about working as a team and trusting each other and actually go up to become a really great high performing team. I think you need to have some communications to do that. Also complementing each other and or just appreciating this was hard for you, I understand that. Or it was great that you did that. Or thank you for helping me with this. It's also important. Yeah, while you were saying this, I was thinking what was the right term for me to define that kind of a culture and the team. I would call it predictability. Mm. So, so it's kind of predictable for me. Let's say I'm a programmer <coughs> and I join a new team. 
the team mm -hmm. is un completely unpredictable for me. I don't know what's going to happen if I say something in this retrospective yeah, meeting. Yeah, so I, yeah. I will stay quiet for a while because I don't know. But if the team is quite mature and we work together for two years, then I know what's going to happen if I tell my friend that you're lazy. I know the consequences that this guy will not get offended, but I know what will happen yeah. to another guy who will get the same message from me. So this predictability probably is the core, what do you think? The ingredient yeah, for success. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a good way of thinking about it, that you, the predictability that, which enables you to trust that you can say whatever you want, because you know the consequences. You don't have to be afraid of the consequences. Well, you could also, I mean, you could also have predictability in a terrible team where you know that you'd be fired if you said something. That's also predictability, but at least, um, you don't have to be worried what will happen because you know what will happen. Yeah. So, and I think that predictability is a big part of the trust as well, that, that you can rely on people, right? That you can rely on them to have this, this interaction with you. You said in, in another, inter, another interview, the presentation, you said that these retrospectives should not be recorded. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, why do you think so? Yeah, well, because... <clears throat> One of the things that I think is very important in a retrospective is that you can talk about things that went wrong. That's actually, so the first thing we talked about here is why is it that some teams, organizations don't have these retrospectives? And that's because they're worried about what will happen. That's a worried about who will hear that they did something wrong. And that's also one of the reasons why I say we shouldn't have the manager and the retrospectives unless they are invited by the team. A retrospective should be a place where the Vegas rule is ruling. Like everything that happens in a retrospective stays in a retrospective. You should feel safe enough to say, this didn't work for me. I don't know how to do this. Or I was lazy because I'm not motivated or something like that. You should be allowed to say that. You shouldn't be afraid to say that in a retrospective. And you know, as well as I do now with the web as it is, that if you're recording something and taking it out of context, then it can then it can look really weird, right? So if you if you're in a retrospective and it is being recorded, you have to think about everything you say. You have to mince every little word you say, because you don't know who will hear this part of this sentence. Like, what if there is a what if there is a sentence where people are saying, "I'm so I'm so tired about people saying fuck management all the time," and you just take fuck management out of this and then show it to the manager that wouldn't be great right it's of course you should never say that but maybe you should just remove that <laughs> um, but take taking things out of context can be really dangerous so i don't think you should record it and if if people see that little recording um button up there they they're already thinking about what they are saying or they should be thinking about what they're saying obviously i'm not can you can you tell uh, us a little bit about the book you wrote? You, the, the book is titled "Anti Patterns of Retrospectives," right? So, mm -hmm. so, so probably I, I didn't read it. So I assume that uh, you give some examples or counterexamples of what should should we do or we shouldn't do as retrospectives. Like, tell us why we should read the book. What's there? Right. So the reason why you should read the book that is that there's a lot of material out there about how to make good retrospectives, and that's all very good. And that's a very good start. But once you start facilitating retrospectives, you will notice that it's actually not easy to do it right. You will be making a lot of mistakes. And 
I know that I've made a lot of mistakes. And sometimes I've been in a retrospective where I was thinking, oh, no, I don't know what to do now. And I actually just wanted to run away from the retrospective. Or I've been preparing a retrospective and I've been thinking, what should we do in this retrospective? What will work with these people? And after retrospectives, I sometimes thought, how can we make sure that these action points actually become something that they will do and not just something that they put in a JIRA somewhere and forget about it like the rest of the backlog? So <clears throat> you should read this book if you are facilitating retrospectives or want to facilitate retrospectives so that you know how what to avoid. So it, it creates awareness about things that can go wrong. So for instance, you should be aware that there's sometimes a loud mouth in a retrospective, somebody who talks all the time and takes the whole speaking arena for everybody else. You should be aware of the consequences that has. So every anti-pattern is the book in the book has a name. It's got a little a vignette with an octopus and then it's got a context um, so when, you, when you're in this context, this happens. And then the anti-pattern solution is what you would normally do. And the, so the anti-pattern solution could be, okay, so if you have a loud mouth, you, maybe you just let the loud mouth speak because you think the loud mouth has a lot of things to say. So that's the anti-pattern. Mm -hmm. the, the consequences is that some people will not be heard. And then there's the refactored solution is what you should do. And then in my refactored solution, I describe if you can avoid this pattern, how do you avoid this pattern? <clears throat> but also if you find yourself in this anti-pattern, how can you get out of this anti-pattern? And when it comes to the loud mouth, what I'm saying is that if you know you have a loud mouth already, then you can plan the retrospective with activities that doesn't involve so much plenum talking. Because a loud mouth, when there's plenum, the loud mouth will talk and talk. So what you should do in the, instead is that you'd ha you should have people write things in post-it notes or you should make them talk in smaller groups or you should have, if it's in real life, you could have a talking stick. If it's remote, you can say we, like, we make a round robin. Everybody gets a chance to say something. You can even have a little watch on the screen that says nobody can talk for more than 30 seconds or a minute. And then it won't just be you saying shut up, shut up, shut up all the time. It's the process, right? Mm -hmm. And it's easier if it's the process. You can just say, unfortunately, we have to move on now. <clears throat> if you're not aware that there's a loud mouth, if it's the first time you're facilitating for this team and you notice there's a loud mouth. So as soon as you notice there's a loud mouth, you can start thinking about how many of these things can I implement right now? Can I say, okay, great. So I'll put you out in breakout rooms right now. So you'll be two or three in each breakout room. And then you come back and you talk to us about it because then the people in the other breakout rooms at least will have a chance to talk to each other. Only the breakout room with the loud mouth would be sort of, overwhelmed with the loud mouth but sometimes you can also if it is loud mouth that you that you have to work with for a longer time you could talk to that loud mouth in between the retrospectives and say you have a lot of great things to say but it is a problem that you talk so much at the retrospectives because it's difficult for the other people to say something sometimes the loud mouth gets very surprised because they've never seen themselves as a loud mouth and maybe they can learn something that they can use in other aspects of their life i've seen that or maybe they're saying, hmm, I don't think you're right. And then you can, the next time you just, um, I've tried that as well. You can summarize how many minutes did the loudmouth talk and then show them the data afterwards and said, you talked 40 minutes out of the 90 minutes we had with 10 people. So the refactored solution is how do I avoid this? Or if I'm in this situation, how do, how do I get out of the situation? 
And that's the same for every anti-pattern. There's this name, there's a context, there's the anti-pattern solution, which is what you will do, which is a problem, the consequences of that, and then what, how you get out of that uh, situation. And then I have my own personal anecdotes at the end, uh, where I say, well, this is where it went wrong for me, or this is how I solved it. So the personal anecdotes are, are different from, from each chapter. But that's where it started. It started with me telling my personal anecdotes about things going wrong at presentations. And if you're in this situation, this is how to avoid it. And then people asked, well, where can I read about this? And that's nine years ago. And I said, you can't read about this anyway. It's all in my head. And people kept saying, can't you write something about that? I said, I hate writing. Really don't like, I'm not very good at it either. But then I started writing some small things that I could hand out when I was teaching retrospectives. So I handed out retrospective anti-patterns to these people. And then um, I talked to them North and Simon Brown. They said, why don't you make a lean pop book? Because a lean pop book is easy. You just add whatever you have to lean pop and then people will pay for it and they will give you feedback. And I did that. So I had it as a lean pop book for some years, but then I had a publisher being interested. And then I thought, hmm, if some... If one publisher is interested, then maybe others. And then I contacted Edison Wesley Pearson, and then they were interested in it. So that's how the book came to life. And you should read it because it's fun to read about other people's problems. You can read about my anecdotes and saying, gosh, you were stupid. That's fun. I would never do that. But it could also be that you read it and you say, hmm, it's nice to know this. Then maybe I can avoid this. So it's, it's, it's anti-patterns about how to plan, how to structure an anti-pattern, how to deal with different personality types and how to make sure that you're talking about the right things. So interesting. That's actually the question I wanted to ask you. Where, where did you get this knowledge? And uh, you just explained that it's, it's coming out of, from your many years of experience. So it seems that this knowledge lies somewhere on the border between management and behavioral psychology or something. So yeah. <clears throat> you're telling us how to deal with people with different behavioral types of people with different types of behavior and uh, it seems that it's possible to to turn it into science somehow i mean you're phd already so you probably don't need this but i mean don't need this uh, to get to get the badge but maybe young managers could be interested in taking your book reading your suggestions, your, 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 your ideas of how to deal with that, and then scientifically try to prove that your ideas work in, in certain cases. I'm sure there's some PhDs in there. <laughs> <laughs> so because I have my PhD, I'm trained as a researcher. What I did after, when I wanted to make it a real book, like not just the lean top pop thing, mm -hmm. I, I tried to find um, citations for all the books where I find this knowledge. So I've, I've looked into uh, research in psychology and research in um, how you learn, how the brain takes in new information. And I've read a lot of different books. So I try to cite where things come from, but there's still a lot of what you'd call um, your theory of practice. And that's where it started for me. It was a theory of practice. I made a theory based on my practice, made, a, made some theories based on my experiments and say, this is what happens. This is not what happens. It's the same like when I started to research into, into teaching and learning. I'd been teaching at university and in the IT industry for 16 years before I started looking into the research. And that was so interesting. And I think there's a lot more that you could look into that's in my book that I haven't quoted. Or I don't have any like psychological background to say but I remember like that brain explosion when I started reading about the research between how the brain learns and how you teach 
and finally understanding these things that I've been doing for years, why they work, or these things that sometimes work and sometimes don't work, I now understand, ah, it works in this situation because of this, but it doesn't work in this situation because of that. Like the, the small thing that when you're, when you're trying to explain something to somebody or uh, when you're trying to teach them, there's this constructivism that I'll try to make this simple um, because we don't have a lot of time. But if, if, if you think about something that's in the brain, so this is something that's in the brain, right? And then you explain something to somebody and it's sort of attaches, it associates with what's already in the brain, then it stays in the brain. But if you try to explain something to them, that is not attached to anything else in the brain, if you don't manage to associate it to what they have already, then they might be able to say it, but after a few days, it's gone. You probably tried that you, um, you explained something technical to somebody and they said, yes, yes, and they can do it, like they can do all the motions, they can do the, like the right buttons and everything. You're like, I've taught you that, great. So that's ticked off, we'll go on. And then the next week, they can't do it, right? And, and that's because we're, when you're in the deep sleep, the brain is making some sort of garbage collection again, because the brain is lazy. It's not lazy, but it doesn't want to spend that much energy. So I perceive it as lazy. So the brain is taking away the things that you don't need. So they're sort of making this garbage collection where they're saying, oh, we're following this live pointer, right? And then we're going to keep all the things that are live by pointers, but everything that's not pointed to, we'll just, we'll, we'll remove that. And that's not exactly what it like. That's not what's happening chemically in the brain. But in a sense, when you're asleep, is that when you're in the in the light sleep, you're learning the things that are connected to each other better and better. And the things that the brain piece perceives as something you don't need, you you're getting rid of that. And when I understood that, it changed my whole way of teaching. Because now I know I have to associate it to something that they already know doesn't matter how good I am at explaining, how intelligent I am, how good examples I have. If I don't have anything that relates to what they know, then it's a problem. Well, you can cheat that, of course. You can create an experiment, an experience in their brains that will connect to something in their memory about that day. So if you can, if you can make them have feelings about something, being angry or being happy about something, then it might work anyway. But that's a longer story. You're a good teacher. My Thank last you. question, my last question, we're running out of time. My last question is, um, do you think you've covered everything what's necessary to know in the area of retrospectives and facilitating them in your book, or there's still room for more research, more ideas? I think there's room for a lot more research. One thing that I didn't go into deeply enough is a whole the thing about psychological safety and trust, because I didn't feel equipped to do that. So I'm just scratching the surface there. But as you talked about, the thing about different cultures, how do you make them speak? How much do you want to make them speak? Where's the border between mm, like teasing them to say something they don't really feel safe enough to say and then allowing them to keep up their pretenses? I don't know. So that's great. So we have uh, young researchers in this field, so they might be interested to join and uh, continue from where you where you finished at the book. That would be great. <laughs> I look forward to reading that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, many thanks for coming to the podcast. It was really interesting conversation for me. I learned quite a lot of things. Well, I watched your some of your presentations before, so now I have a bigger picture of your uh, 
of, of the things you work on. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Diego. It was interesting. Thank always like to get asked questions and I was amazed that you have actually seen some of my presentations. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.